Hello and welcome to the Uncapped Podcast, brought to you by Roast House Pub, one of Frederick's finest craft beer and culinary destinations, where great people come to drink amazing beer. Visit them to track their taps and menu at roasthousepub.com, or download the digital pour app to track what's on tap. I'm your host, Chris Sands, and this is our first episode covering the wine industry. And because I know even less about wine than most things, Kate Masters is here to take the lead and move us into this new realms. I'm so, excited. I'm here. I'm thank here. you for being here. <laughs> thank you for having me. And um, the poor soul that has been selected <laughs> to suffer through teaching me the basics of wine is Rachel Lippman, the assistant winemaker at Low Vineyards in Mount Airy. Thank you. I'm excited to be here, too. And um, from what you were saying, assistant winemaker is just one line in yeah. a very long list of... Uh, yeah, I, I have a, um, I've been able to kind of get myself in every aspect of the industry. Um, so I've worked in retail uh, and beer and wine stores, and I've worked in international vineyards. Um, so my background's actually in plant science. Um, so when we do talk about a lot of the issues with and what people deal with in Maryland vineyards, um, I'm pretty knowledgeable with that and an, an entry-level psalm. So so a little bit of everything. For um, people like me, what does psalm mean? Uh, sommelier is um, essentially a, a wine expert. Um, so a lot of times you see them in restaurants. That's actually where um, the associations kind of like to uh, – deal themselves, I guess, is in terms of restaurants where they can recommend wine. Um, there, you do see them sometimes in retail stores, too, um, or as wine distributors, and that's also what I am as well. So what types of things do are you tested to on to become a sommelier? Uh, so there's three different parts. Um, there is theory, which is kind of the background and little bits of history about different varietals and um, and the wine industry and, and actually also on spirits and different types of cocktails and stuff. Um, then there's blind tasting, um, which those two parts I had passed when I took those, that exam. Um, and then, uh, then you're also graded on service and service is, you know, if you're doing it flawlessly, um, basically in an amok situation. So the taste testing, is that like being able to pick out different mm-hmm. types or? So like- you're given two different wines, essentially. Yeah, two different wines, a red and a white, um, and you have to um, figure out what varietal it is, let's say like Pinot Noir or Chardonnay or Riesling, um, and then what region it is, the kind of, you know, the the range of how old it is, um, and then different characteristics you get out of that wine. And for an untrained novice, how do you pick out those characteristics? I mean, how do you do that blind? Um, Well, so it takes a lot of practice, um, and uh, I've... That's the... The horrible part of it. <laughs> the horrible part, yeah. Um, my number is pretty high. I mean, um, people always say, oh, you look like you're 12. And, uh, you know, I'm like always joke that I have the gray hair. But my, my number of wines I've tried is probably in the 20-something thousand, um, which is a lot for my age. Um, but, you know, the more that you expose yourself to different wines, you can kind of pick part um, the different characteristics of them. For example, Pinot Noir. It's a very easy example because it's a thin-skinned grape, so it'll always be light in the glass. And usually, although in, in some areas it can be done with high tannin, but it's usually done with very low tannins. And then there's different fruit characteristics and earthier characteristics that can pinpoint which part it is in the world. So if it's more fruit-forward, fruit drives the bus, then it's from New World. If it's Old World where Earth drives the bus, then it's from Europe. 
So I, I also have tried about 20. Yeah. But without all the zeros. All the zeros, yeah. <laughs> and do you have a favorite type of wine? I mean, after trying all of those? Um, I usually say that there's about 25 in my top five. Um, so, you know, it depends on my... That it, math doesn't work out. I know, it really <laughs> doesn't work out. I have like five in my top three. Um, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things where um, it depends on your mood. Because, like, there's a lot of Austrian wines that, like, I absolutely love and adore. And on every other day of the week, I will probably want to go for an Austrian wine. But then there's sometimes I'm like, oh, well, I miss, like, the wines that I had when I was living in France. So then I'll go for wines like that. So it depends on my mood. And I, and I you know, they all kind of fill the bill, but it just depends on, like, what exact hankering I have that day. Wait, are Austrian wines, those are Malbecs, right? No, no, Austrian. Ah. Um <laughs> So you're thinking of Argentina. Yeah, that's what I meant. That's like a, not even yeah. German and Spanish. That's totally n- different. <laughs> totally different. <laughs> like I said, no, nothing. You know, it's okay. I mean, like the thing is that there's 8,000 varietals out there. I mean, you can kind of view it as the way that you would beer um, in terms of there's different flavors, there's different styles, you know, different areas that you can consider different beers from. Like with the Belgian beers, there's different Belgian styled beers, and then there's, you know, there are actual Belgian beers, and they probably taste very different, the Belgian styles versus the ones from Belgium, um, just in terms of, you know, I guess th- maybe there's a different earthiness or, or whatever. And I guess, I'm you know, moving back to more local ground, mm-hmm. how would you characterize a lot of the wines that are coming out of Maryland now? You know, it's kind of interesting because, you know, we are technically more fruit forward because um, we are um, fruit, because fruit drives the bus since we are in um in, in Maryland and in, in the New World. Um, but, you know, where there's a big focus on international varietals. Um, so not just Cabernet Sauvignon, not, not necessarily just Chardonnay, even though there is a good amount of Chardonnay being produced here. Um, but also Italian varietals and then French varietals. Well, French in terms of, um, I consider Cab Franc a little bit more kind of from just exactly the Loire Valley. Um, and then um, you have Nebbiolo, and some people are growing Sangiovese, and and doing different things with um, with those different varietals. And it, it's it's kind of interesting because um, they are slightly more fruit forward, but then at the same time you have that twist that's kind of like it's from that area. Okay, interesting. And we, you also, the last time we talked, you mentioned mm-hmm. that a lot of the vines being grown locally are mm-hmm. called French-American hybrids. And what's the concept behind that? So, you know, I was actually, after we had talked about that, you know, the, there are a, a good amount of producers producing, like, Chamberson. Um, and with my grandparents, we're, the, the older that we get, I guess, in terms of a vineyard and a winery, the less I'm seeing other producers growing those varietals like we grow Marichal Foch, Chancellor, um, you know there are there are some producers that like to grow the hybrids like Vidal and Seval because um, they grow extremely well and for us you know we grow what makes sense at our vineyard but other people you know sometimes they want to try um, things that kind of maybe show that Maryland can grow the same grapes that you can grow in California. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see um, the evolution of those of those vineyards that they're starting to stop produce some of those varietals, um, but we still produce them because they work. So it I've, I've kind of after we talked, I did a little bit of looking, and um, that's kind of what I noticed. Okay, okay, and I a lot of, I think the varietals they're often an introductory vine mm-hmm. because growing in Maryland oh, yeah. is challenging. Yeah, definitely an, an introductory vine because a lot of times people they start vineyards and 
and they may not have a huge background in plant science, horticulture. Um, you know, they do it maybe as a starting thing as they retire. Um, so there's a lot of very small producers or, you know, there are some that, you know, they've always wanted to, to own a vineyard and then they hire the right people to do it. Um, and there are some people that have that background that are hired out, you know, immediately um, or do it immediately. Um, and a lot of times when you're not familiar with this area, they're going to produce and grow varietals that are the hybrids because we have issues with Japanese beetles. We have issues with the fungal diseases um, and different, you know, situations and things that they don't have to deal with in California, but then also we don't deal with some of the things that they deal with in California, um, you know, like the drought and the fires and sometimes the sharpshooters. So those are little insects. Sharpshooters, it's a little like leafhopper, and they're really beautiful, actually. So they're, they're a beautiful plague because uh, there exists a little bit in Virginia because it's a little bit more south than we are. Um, I did a research project on, on that in college, and they, they do sometimes exist in Maryland depending on how warm of a season we get. Um, but they inject a virus, so they are a little they're a vector of a virus into the vine, and um, which is called Pierce's disease. And we don't really see that as much in Maryland. It's, it's slightly more prevalent in Virginia. But, for example, in Temecula, California, it's destroyed tons of vineyards where they just, like, they look emaciated. Can they recover from that or are they gone? Um, you have to eradicate the, the, the plant, not the plant, the, um, uh, the sharpshooter. Um, and you have to essentially get them at the most vulnerable, vulnerable stage. Um, and... Uh, the thing, the problem with them is that they do overwinter in, in other, um, other plants, and uh, so it, it's it's a hard it's a hard insect to eradicate, but it's not as much of a problem here. Can you move your headphone cable like over oh, is to it the here? Yeah, that would okay. be perfect. Okay. Thank you. Um, uh, cool thing about Temecula, mm-hmm. they they're, they've been known for wine for a really long time, mm-hmm. right? So they they also have a ton of amazing breweries. They yeah. started to also make a conservative effort to get breweries to move there, and it's probably and also because they had an issue with, with the with the insect, and they needed I want, the alcohol. Yeah, I wonder, if, I wonder that, if that is that may have been one of the driving. How long ago did that happen? I mean, it's been it's been ongoing. I think for at least I mean for many years. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's one of those things where you know it's you have it a big. It's going to be a big deal one year, and then maybe not as big of a deal the next year. I mean, again, when there is like a drought like that, because they like the arid climate and they like the warmth. Um, then you'll have a bigger issue with that insect. But, you know, it's good that we don't have that issue as much. Um, you might see it, like, sporadically every five years maybe. I mean, depending on um, if the uh, the cuttings that you got, where you got the cuttings from, if they um, – the vine cuttings, if – there, if they were had any insects on them, I mean that that's it's a lot of sanitary things that we have, we have to deal with that can bring fungal diseases and insects and you know the whole the whole nine yards. And we don't have the sharpshooters, but we have the Japanese beetles. Yeah, Japanese here. beetles are are a terror. Anyone who says that they don't have an issue with Japanese beetles, I have a hard time believing it. Um, I know in my neighborhood we had them everywhere in every tr- by the end of summer there wasn't a tree with leaves left on it. Yeah, so they skeletonize. So basically, what they do is they go through, and that's why each leaf will actually they'll continue to have their veins. But, yeah, it's crazy but the leaf looking. Stru- surface Actually, it's area. almost beautiful, but you know, well, it's like, not. not the, <laughs> no, like, it's not. Like, not the, if you're the, a winemaker. Uh, visually, yeah. It's beautiful, so but what you... it's done is not. 
no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, so if you go to a vineyard and, you know, and you've seen Japanese beetle damage, it's because everything on the top of them, because they go for the juvenile tissue first, which is on the top of the plant, and it's all brown. So it actually really makes it so, for me, it's, it's an ugly sight to see because when you walk into a vineyard or you drive up to a vineyard, you want to see green. That's what everybody wants to be able to walk in. It's, it's just a very romantic feel for them. And then you see the top of the vineyard, the top of the, of the tissue is all brown because it's all, you know, it's, it's dying tissue at that point. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it is a problem because a, a, lot, of the, a lot of the times um, people are growing those international varietals, like, like say, Cabernet Sauvignon, um, Sauvignon Blanc, um, Pinot Gris. And for some reason, you know, actually, Japanese beetles, the name Japan, they're Asian. Um, and where wine grapes originated is the Tigris-Euphrates River, where Turkey is, which is actually Anatolia, the Mesopotamian River. So that's actually the Asian side of Turkey. Um, for some reason, what we've noticed at our vineyard, and it may not be for other people, but I'm, I'm very c- convinced that because they're Asian, an Asian, um, Asian plants, and also an Asian uh, insect, they go to that first. So then actually for us, they go to the French-American hybrid second. So it's, they're a little bit more resistant to those plants. That's why they'll always go to the Japanese maple because they're, they're both this from the same area. Oh, sure. And, and is there any way for vineyards to control Japanese beetles? You have to spray. Spray. Okay. Yeah, spraying. And, um, you know, I've done a lot of research. I had a very big interest of that because they are such a big nuisance um, that there are different plants that you can plant that actually repel them. Um, and it, I have to, I have to do a little bit more of a, a project on that. So, um, I don't know if my grandfather will really want, um, me to try that out, but I might just plant some stuff sporadically and see if I can have my own little like circle of, of <laughs> no Japanese <laughs> beetles. <laughs> resistance. Yeah. <laughs> well, and another thing that we have to deal with in Maryland that, you know, California growers don't, or the climate is the climate. Yeah. It's seasons. very different. I mean, you know, that's a nice thing about having, I think Maryland as a wine growing area compared to, you know, the, the typical California um, or uh, even, you know, sometimes New York. And it's you really are able to every different region that you ha- that you try wine from, it's going to be different. I mean, I, I don't know if it's the same way with beer in terms of, you know, you can make a certain type of stout and if it's going to taste different based off the location, because wine is very much based off of the terroir and you can make I mean, there's the influence of the winemaker where you can make a wine taste whichever way you really kind of want it to taste. But then there's also the specific thing of where the grape came from with the way that the whole entire year interacted with, with the vines of if it was a harsh winter and then if there's late bud break. Um, and then that would depend on the ripening and then the sugar levels if it was hot enough and you had enough sun. So you can really pick apart if you really tested yourself and learned a lot about Maryland wine – a Maryland wine, obviously, versus a California wine. That's a little bit easier because California is high sugar, high alcohol, heavy fruit bomb, and massive wines. And then if you for a Cabernet Sauvignon, for example, and then if you have a Cabernet Sauvignon from Maryland, it's actually, it's for me, it's slightly more European because they're a little bit thinner. And for me, I think it's enjoyable because, you know, you're not going to get something that's necessarily so extracted. You're going to get a little bit more of a, it's a cooler, slightly cooler climate, so it's less extraction compared to a hotter climate, which means way more extraction. So if if all those things factor into, like, your grape yield for that year, mm-hmm. what does the perfect year look like? 
the perfect year, um, I would say, is tiny bit of rain, not a huge amount. I mean, you want it to be a little bit more arid, so a slight drought is okay in a sense. Um, and then for it to be warm um, and have lots of sunshine. And, you know, there, there are some vintages in other regions and in other countries where they had almost what looked like a really bad vintage. I mean, they had like maybe two weeks of rain, but then followed by those two weeks of rain, they had like three weeks of sunshine and no rain. And it just happened to then make it like the best vintage they ever had. It happened in Austria in 2015. So, you know, it really, you could have everything go wrong and then everything go right. So it's hard to say exactly what like the most idyllic um, harvest or, or vintage could end up being because you could maybe even have everything go right. And then for some reason, like two days right before harvest, then everything go wrong. Mm. And, and if you don't have that ideal harvest, what are things that a winemaker can do in the cellar to help change the wine? Well, so there's different, there's different methods. Um, I mean, for example, let's say you have a really bad vintage of cab. In 19, I think it was like 19, um, oh, what did we, so my grandparents and I, we drank, um, it was 1996. We had a honey wine that was actually, um, we, we made a honey wine with a red, with a red grape, with Cabernet Sauvignon, because for some reason, that vintage of cab was horrible. <laughs> and so what we did was the, we actually made it into a pie mint, which is a version of a honey wine, which is a, a mead. And it actually did extremely well as a mead. Um, so we used that grape in a different fashion. And there's ways to do that. I mean, if you have a really sometimes a bad vintage of a red where you're not, you know, you're not going to get the color that you want because all red grapes besides a few have white juice and you get the color of the red from the, from the skins. And if you can't get the full extraction that you may want, uh, turn it into rosé. I mean, it, there's different ways that you can work around it. And in really bad vintages, you can make a red grape into a white wine and just say, look, this is something rare. No. And then and that puts that literally turns water into gold. What um when at at what point of the process do you know if you have a bad yield? Is it right after harvesting the grape or do you It's is more it of right before. In- yeah, right before you're going to see the pH levels, the sugar levels, the acid levels. And if it if it's not ripening, then the acid's going to be way too high and the sugar's not going to be decent. Um, there are some some years where maybe, and we actually haven't tried this in Maryland. I think so. It could be pretty kind of interesting. Um, you know, if there wasn't an availability to make a white wine um, to the you know like a full maybe twelve percent alcohol to make a vino verde style because our st- our region is actually very similar to the Basque region, mm-hmm. and if you make a vino verde style wine, it's lower alcohol and it has a little bit of that effervescence. So you, you know, um, you know, it just it depends on. There's a, there's a lot of different things that kind of depend on what the producer will do and what they have the ability to do, the tools to do, which are very expensive, um, and, uh, and then maybe what type of style they're trying to go for. Mm. Right, let's take a quick break to thank Roast House Pub one more time. I, I actually I don't know if they have much of a wine selection, but I'm pretty sure most they have people some are, wine. pretty sure most people are going there for beer though. Yeah. they have 20 taps that you can keep track of on their website or with the digital pour app, which I do regularly to figure out when I want to go in and try the latest rare release that he had just gotten his hands on. Um, Check back on their website and their Facebook page regularly to um, see what events they have coming up. They constantly have beer dinners, which if you've never had a beer dinner at Roast House Pub, it's one of the most amazing five-course meals you'll ever have. Um, they have constant tap takeovers and, of course, the monthly uh, mom spaghetti dinner, 
which at some point I will probably actually understand what it is and be able to explain it accurately. So once again, thank you, Roast House Pub. So it, is there ever a point where like you have grapes that like you thought are going to be great mm -hmm. and then the wine just turns out horrible or can you tell yeah that's what i'm wondering like can yeah. you tell from the clusters of grapes are you looking for like that bakken cluster of well you know there you want to have good good looking fruit um and you want you know there you're going to have in every batch of wine you're going to have a few clusters that may not necessarily make the best cut but they're decent enough um but you're not you're going to you know when you're when you're first pressing the juice and you're and you're macerating the juice with the skins for let's say a red wine um you know you're going to be able to kind of you know smell it get to get an idea of what it what it's doing if the fermentation is working you know you're able to see the quality i guess as a step-by-step -step process and you're kind of seeing as you go um you know for us when you know when we're when we're punching down, which is um, allowing to get extraction out of the juice with the skins. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at the color. You know, you're tasting the juice and, you know, maybe once a day, you know, maybe every two or three days or once a week, depending, um, just to see what aromatic you get out of the, out of the fruit and what um, characteristics you might get out of it because that will give you a better understanding of um, the quality of the wine. But, you know, a lot of times when you see that you have the sugar level, the acid level, the pH level, and then that's all correct, and then you also have the added stuff of, you know, um, you know you're know, you testing it and you're looking at it and you're, I mean, it's a very hands-on process for most producers. Um, you're able to kind of see what kind of quality it is and predict in a sense as long as the fermentation goes correctly. And at low, what's your average fermentation time? Well, fermentation in general, it lasts for about two weeks. Um, you know, it, it really, it depends on um, on the quickness of the fermentation. Some are stuck or slowish or sluggish. Um, but, you know, you don't really deal with that as much as unless, like, for some reason, the yeast is just not taking hold um, and eating up little, you know, molecules of sugar. Um, but in, in general, it's um, it's about two weeks for, for most um, varietals. So you had listed a couple ways where you can recover if you mm -hmm. end up with a bad batch. Um, so, like, in the world of spirits, they can almost always recover. Well, they make something bad, you run it back through the steel, just make a neutral spirit. And you could do something. that with grapes, too. Okay, so that's what I was <laughs> going to say. I if, mean, if, if you want to make cognac, I mean, or brandy, you, that's, you know, a lot of times like, oh, well, this is not good. Okay, what do you do with it? Well, um... You know, there's there's different there's different things you can do with so it. So you can can you almost always recover from like well for spirits you can always recover. Yeah. that's why. Oh, that's, no, I mean yeah. with, with wine. Oh, with wine, so like um, beer you you end up with a bad batch. There's well, there's, there's nothing not you, can much do. you can do to recover. Yeah, from, not for beer you can't do anything if about wine, it. Wine, do you end up ever having to? You dump, blend. Or can you, okay. I mean, you can blend. I mean, that's that's one big thing for in terms of for wines. If let's say there's something off, let's say that maybe the the red has just has a little bit too high acid than you would really kind of anticipated because when you picked it I mean it looked good and everything was was correct however there's a bunch of bees that were going to attack it and you're like I've got to just recover it and fix it so that way I don't have to worry about losing a crop you never want to lose a crop um, so then you then you can blend and blend with a varietal that's maybe lower acid um, so that way you can get uh, a, a a wine that's that's palatable um, and that's decent I mean for us we we don't grow or or make a wine that we don't like. Um, so it's very entirely based off of my palate, my grandfather's palate, and my grandmother's palate. And 
you know, sometimes one of us will win more um, compared to the others or or I'll persuade more um, depending how much time I have. Usually it takes about three months, but, you know, that's, 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 <laughs> on, that's, average. Uh, on average. Not that you've, you've had to do this often. <laughs> uh, not, not, yeah, pretty often. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it, there's different ways to go around it where, you know, for a white wine, let's say, you know, you, it has really nice acidity, um, but you want to go with a different style. For a Chardonnay, for example, you put it in, in a little bit of oak. Um, you know, there's there's different ways to go about, you know, changing wines. And in my words, it's usually manipulation. Um, and, you know, it's, you can add in sugar at any time. Some wineries don't like doing that. Some wineries are okay with doing that. Um, there's different additives that you can use. I'm a purist when it comes to wine, which is why I'm very picky about the wines that I, that I drink. And I know usually when I see a, a wine, I can, I know what, what probably has gone on with it. But, um, you know, I like authentic wines that aren't high sugar, high alcohol that you know that they've added stuff in. Well, and I was going to ask, is there anything, you know, when you mention using those additives, is there Mm -hmm. anything consumers can look out for? Because I don't know if... Nah. Nah. No. (laughs) I mean, unless you're buying a wine that's entirely mass produced, um, you know, usually there's a certain percentage of of wines that, that are mass produced that have been manipulated by additives. Um, you know, I don't have a problem with adding in sugar with wines because if you if you have a very low bricks level, which is the sugar level when you first harvest a grape, and you're at, and you and the everything else is good besides your alcohol is going to be like extremely low. I have no problem with adding in sugar because that's just helping it a little bit. Um, but then when you're getting into the point where you're adding in grape concentrates and oak tannins and oils, that's where I'm like, well, that's actually manipulating the character of the wine. Um, so there are some producers that might do that. And, and, you know, they're not, it's not a huge deal for a lot of people because everyone's drinking those wines and you just don't know it. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know, it, it, it comes to be a fine line of you want to, you want to showcase a wine from your specific area. And, and unless if you're adding in those things, then you're not being true. Yeah, one, one thing I found really interesting when we had, uh, Kevin Addicts mm-hmm. and He's Callie great. Pfeiffer on mm-hmm. and I was asking him the contrast like the different struggles that each of the industries that they represent have right and where like um breweries are fighting to remove regulations mm-hmm. distilleries have smaller hurdles that they're of regulations they're trying to remove right but the wine industry's biggest fight he said right now is it, it's actually adding a regulation where like you want um the, the amount of Maryland grown, mm-hmm. the percentage of Maryland grown grapes that, that your wine is produced to be bumped higher to yeah. be able to consider it to be Maryland uh, wine. So I right. thought that I thought that was interesting. So it kind of plays in with the adding things in and yeah, you know, I I'm <clears throat> I have a big I'm I mean being I think you know I I guess I calling it a purist. I want wines to be representative of for the area. And I, um, and I, you know, there are wineries in Maryland that just buy juice, um, from other areas. And that's not necessarily, I mean, they're, they're wineries in Maryland. So they're Maryland wineries, but they aren't using, but they aren't Maryland wines. They're importing like concentrates from Chile. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, those are fun for people and they're learning about wine for the custom crush kind of thing when, you know, cause they can, um, they can buy barrels, not buy barrels, they can rent them out, 
you know, rent the juice and then, you know, have someone make the wine for them. And then they're like, oh, well, they had put their influence on a Chilean red, for example, or something from Italy or whatever. And there are a lot of people that love doing that. And I think that, you know, that's fine. Um, but when you're representing Maryland wine, you can actually rent. It's like rent. It's like renting. I don't, I'm not sure. I don't know. It's, it's, um, the winery at Olney does it and they have this thing where you can, um, they have this, this room in the back and it's in the one in Olney. Um, and you can go in and you're not buying the barrel, but you're able to pay a certain amount for that wine to be made and then you can have it custom made in terms of like with an oak barrel or with oak chips um so in that case someone can say they put their hands on it but um and helped influence produce it and they can i mean you know have like you know an extra couple few cases you know of wine or whatever actually six that's about 60 gallons um so maybe like 15 to 20 cases or so of their own wine that they bought juice from or whatever so it's an interesting concept it's kind of like i think breweries sometimes do it i don't know i mean it's no, like small brewer, I mean, well it's like small yeah buy, well i mean i guess if you want to like look small at batch it brewing yeah a brewery you mean like contract brewing i guess that, i mean it's like, like where you like a large brewery will brew beer for it's like a home brew in a in a controlled environment <laughs> i guess if that's that's my, I guess my best way of putting it, because I mean, but then you're you know you're spending a good amount of money for I guess what would be per bottle, and then I think people can design their labels or whatever. Um, but that's that's different than being a Maryland winery. It's a winery in Maryland, not a Maryland winery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you said the, um, putting oak chips into you can is do that. that. The, is that to speed up? The, no, it's or um, just to change. So so if you have a winery that does. Um, that only uses neutral barrel. Neutral barrels are much cheaper, and they impart little to no flavor on at all onto a wine. For example, what a does red that wine mean? is that going to um, be like the stainless steel or the? Um, you can do them in sta- I think you can do them in stainless steel, but you, usually they're neutral barrels in terms of like they're they're uh, French French oak or American oak oh. or whatever that's had so much um, so many passes through. So like let's say they're on their sixth or seventh use or whatever, and there's not. Um, there's no end part of flavor at that point okay. because when you have a, a wine that's a, a that's been oak aged in a, a new French oak, for example, and it's a um, barrel that's you know the 69 gallon 60 no it's 59 gallons so it's uh, 225 liters or so, and um, you have a wine that's been aging in there for let's say 24 months, you're gonna get a pretty nice end part of a toasty kind of smoky flavor, um, but if you have if you do that the exact same thing for 24 months in a neutral barrel. It's just going to be a little rounded. It's not going to really have a huge impart of flavor, not that peppery or smoky or toasty kind of note. Um, but then, so in that case, if they want to to kind of bump up the um, the not the time, but the um, the influence of that toasty note on on a wine, you may add in some oak chips. Um, okay. Usually, they're oak chips in like in a in a, in a bag, kind of like tea, um, or even a spiral. <clears throat> And that will help the, the influence of, of any oak flavor. Yeah, someone had just told me about one that there's debate. Um, some distillers don't believe it at all. Mm-hmm. Some will say that 
like if you add in the spiral oak mm-hmm. spirals into a barrel, there are with breweries it, that do that. That'll speed up the aging process. Southern of Tier did, yeah. Southern Tier's done that. Yeah, um, that's I mean that's common when you barrel yeah. age stuff to put other things in the right. barrel to impart different flavors and right. more flavors. But this was specifically like to, to like to artificially speed up the aging process by giving think, more. Yeah, but I don't think you can do that with with spirits entirely because um, you need that micro oxygenation process for it to really um work i mean i i I spent a couple of days i was only like a day um in cognac uh, when i was living in france for a little bit and um i actually i think i asked her something as as, as, um, a female distiller and i've been to distilleries since um that you know you want to use those those bigger barrels and the longer time it sits it's it's like kind of that maceration process with with the skins yeah, of the juice i took um mcclintock's distilling class okay. and there were a lot of big words yeah. and <laughs> sciency things said about like it's not just the imparting the flavor there's right. molecular changes yeah. that are taking place and that, the that color you, change for example yeah. that's a big thing I mean, the the color change it, it happens with reds. It happens with spirits. I mean, you aren't gonna you're not gonna be able to stick in a spiral and be like, all right, three weeks later, everything's gonna be tinted brown. It doesn't really work like yeah. that. It you need you know it it might it might be tinted a little bit, but then when you actually let it sit for a long period of time and it kind of have the micro oxygenation process and and um and you're you're kind of you know maybe stirring it and allowing the all the the molecules to touch the parts of the oak and have that whole you know process um you're and then year by year which is why you have like the 10 year or whatever and and they're they're not just brown but they have a little kind of golden hue and that's sometimes with a little bit of that you know the impart of of the time that it's been spent in there and you said that you're a purist, so is you know, are the oak chips or the oak spiral are they considered pure? I mean, they're I mean they're fine. Um, you can usually tell a little bit of a difference, but um, I mean, you know, if you're going to be sustainable and you want to use oak barrel neutral barrels until you can really run them into the ground and you're just, you want to impart a little bit of flavor with a spiral and that's and you make a nice wine out of it good for you know good for you kind of thing um you know for us we like to run our barrels in the ground but we we do get them refinished um so it's it's something where i'm i like to be minimal and i, I like things that to process rep- is really cool what I, the when they're refinished. yeah that's it my, is very cool my wife worked at um it was the the winery downtown that was in the city where pistaro is oh that's now. um it was um it was frederick sellers yeah, i mean it's so now big wife, cork i mean the what was Big Cork, but it's part of was is part of Big Cork. My, my wife worked there, and I was there one time. Okay. And the guy was there um, refinishing the barrels. It was really cool. Yeah, the Coopers are, are really interesting. Um, we have pictures when we we always take pictures whenever we get our refinish because it's it's a fun thing to look at. <laughs> There's a cooperage in Maryland now. Really? Yeah, just um, I think this this year it okay. opened. Interesting. Something I learned this week. Yeah, I have to tell my grandmother. <laughs> So what is the average age that wine spends in a barrel? Um, you know, it depends on the producer. Um, for us, uh, we usually keep it around maybe eight months or so. Um, for most producers, I'd say about maybe a year. Um, I think because that's really what people, especially the people in the, in, who are looking to buy wine. So as consumers really, I think, look for wines that have been, you know, if they, if they do like the oak-aged reds, for them to have been, um, spending time for at least a year in the barrel. Um, and then 
the longer you spend in the barrel for some reason for the idea of consumers is if it's longer in the barrel it means it's a better wine um, which to me is not necessarily the case because you can have so many wines that are just overly overly done um, you know there are certain requirements in certain countries um, you know for in Rioja and for in um, Piedmont with um, with Barolo or Barbaresco um, they have a certain aging requirement maybe of like two years in the barrel um, and then one year in the bottle to rest and then maybe you can release it after that um, but it, you know it, it depends on the style the winemaker there are some some winemakers producing Nebbiolo which is the grape that's used in Barolo and Barbaresco and they're trying to make their version of Barolo or Barbaresco and you know there I think there is one in Maryland that actually calls theirs Barolo um, but um, they're you know they use that same aging requirement and you you know when we talked last you also mentioned that you know say Chamberson which is a mm-hmm. hybrid grape that's mm-hmm. usually done as a fresh wine so it's, yeah so what is the criteria for something that's considered a fresh wine how long is that aged for um, so sometimes they don't put them in oak at all, um, and then other times they may put it in oak for maybe six months, just just till I think it's actually ready, um, and then they'll bottle it, let it sit for maybe a month or two, depending, um, and then they release it. So it's it's kind of a quicker process where fresh is usually where you know it's done with fermentation, you let it, you do what you need to do with it, and then you release it kind of soon afterwards. Um, so it, it's a it's much shorter than you know, a serious red, which would be at least a year and a half. Um, you know, it's it's funny because with my grandparents' wines, we actually, um, we don't release the wines until, A, we feel like the wine is ready, and B, um, when we feel like it. Um, so, um, which, you know, I think is actually kind of fun because the, we, for example, we just released um, kind of recently, it was a 2011 Honey Wine. Um, which it's a five-year-old mead, which is not very common to see a wine that's that old in the market. Um, you know, there was a period of time where um, we were bottling, and it was like we were bottling four-year-old cabs. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, there's – I usually you see, like, it's a quick thing where you just – for people who buy wines in the market, it's the most previous vintage or previous year, or maybe it's been, you know, for – I guess we're in 2017, so you see a lot of 2015 reds. And that's the the – the most recent vintage for a lot of wineries, and um, and they're not holding them back. But I think it's really cool to try some old vintages because you really can get, kind of get the true, I guess I call it a wise character, where, you know, 2015 there might be a lot of reds that are kind of like teenagers, where, they're, you know, I was a rebellious teenager and um, a little wild, and so, you know, the wines may be a little wild at 2015, but you wait an extra two years, and all of a sudden, they're like in that adult phase where they know what they're doing, and they're they're a little bit more laid back, and you can really enjoy them without having to worry about like something surprising in there. So you know, it's kind of uh, it's kind of interesting to see, um, you know, especially I think with Maryland wines, I think they actually age very well, and I don't think a lot of people know that. Um, it's it's quite a shame because. You know, I, I feel very spoiled with my grandparents when we, whenever we were going into our cellar, you know, whenever I'm with my grandfather and we're or the family, we go into the cellar and we pick out something old. I mean, we're drinking our current vintages that we drink at, at our at our house um, 
early 2000s. We, my grandfather drank through the rest of the 93, I think. I have to check to see there's one more bottle because that was a great wine. Um, I just kept going up every day. I'm like, <laughs> like, that's another 93? What, what, do you do? well, like, what are you doing? He goes, it's a great wine. I'm like, all right. Well, so you uh, just, if, you, if you have a year that you like, you just stockpile it? And- well, you know, <laughs> there's a year that, I don't know. I mean, we, I mean, we have a few hundred wines in that cellar. And it's funny because um, he... If he, you know, he really likes one, he'll go through and he'll, and, and, you know, every day I'll see another new one, you know, happened for about three or four months where I would go up and, and I feel like once a week I'd see an old vintage and we'd all talk about it and whatever. But, um, yeah, the 93, I think might be gone and that's very sad. It's very sad. (laughs) I I have to be careful to make sure I have my own little cubby that I have to put that in there. (laughs) The, um, the vintage that it's based on the harvest year, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think a lot of people, um, if there if there's wines with a with a good amount of tannin, um, or it is a f- kind of a thicker skin grape, usually they can actually last a lot longer. So you know, maybe there's some people who have said to us, "Oh, well, we have a bottle of your Harvest Red or something that's it's an older vintage." And I'm like, "Go ahead, drink it. I mean, it's going to be really good." There are some wines that we pr- that if they produce that are supposed to be drunk fresh, like the Chambersin or whatever, depending on how they make the Chambersin, um, it might not be good to drink three years or four years out. But there are plenty, I think, that are well-made wines that you drink them, you could wait 10 years. And like honey wines, 20 years. Go ahead, wait. Then they're great. They're even better. (laughs) Well... Um, well, I, I, you know, before before we go, I okay. did want to talk a little bit about, we've been talking about Maryland wines, mm-hmm. and, you know, I think it is good to introduce people to some of the varietals that are okay. being grown, especially here in Frederick County. So, I mean, one of the ones that you mentioned um, that's very popular is the Cabernet Franc. Cabernet and Franc, yeah. And, yeah, and that's something that you're seeing a lot. It's a great grape. I mean, I love that grape. I mean, it's my it's one of my grandparents' favorite varietals to work with. It's a lot of uh, producers' go-to varietal to go ahead and plant as an international varietal that people recognize. And, you know, it's it's funny. I've done a lot of tastings. Um, I do events two or three times a week. And um, anytime I've done a Cabernet Franc, everyone's like, oh, well, you see that they say that they like Cabernet Sauvignon. So, of course, then they think, okay, well, then I'll like Cabernet Franc. Um, or they say, oh, well, I love Cabernet Franc. And that always makes, like, me really excited because um, – that's a varietal that does very well in Maryland. It's uh, very adaptable for being a international varietal. It does very well with our short seasons because it's slightly more adapted, you know, because it's, it's actually the father grape of Cabernet Sauvignon. So Cabernet, Sauvignon, uh, Cabernet Franc and Sauvignon had a, had a baby, <laughs> and it's Cabernet Sauvignon, which is a little bit more robust. It's a little bit wilder, um, and it produces a fuller-bodied red. Um, but Cabernet Franc, you know, it's, for me, it's funny because it – I have a lot of analogies. I I compare a lot of wines to people, um, and people always laugh at my my Italian um, uh, analogies. But um, the Cabernet Franc reminds me of my grandfather a little bit because it's wiser, it's adaptable, um, and it produces a really elegant wine. And, um, you know, I think it's a a grape that people can go out and buy, and they're going to be happy with it. Because if they like Cabernet Sauvignon being fuller-bodied, but they want something just a little smoother – Especially when I think Maryland, we do pretty well with the smoothness of our of our cabs. Um, you know, they'll be very they'll be pleased with it, 
It's a better food pairing wine, to be honest. Because it has those peppery notes. Yeah. So um, a, a indi- an indicator with Cabernet Franc is, um, is, a, is an, here's another big word, um, it's a, it's, but you might recognize it. It's the pyrazine. So a pyrazine is, is a kind of a chemical compound that gives you that flavor of green pepper. Um, or a peppery note. And um, that's a big indicator when you're smelling Cab Franc is it has a certain peppery note to it, um, which can sometimes be, you know, if it's done, if it's actually, if it's been harvested way too early, it's going to be like a lot of green pepper. You're really going to want to pair that with fajitas kind of thing. (laughs) Like that's like the only way to really combat it is for me with like fajitas. I don't know why I haven't had fajitas in a really long time that I've thought about that. But um, Anyway, so, you know, it actually has a nice peppery note, which gives people a little bit of that earthiness um, because it's a grape that, you know, when I worked in Loire, it had in Loire, it actually has much more gamey notes to it, a little bit of that mushroomy kind of note as well. Um, But for some reason in Maryland, it's it has a lighter body with a little bit of pepper and a little bit of plum and a little bit of cherry. And it's just like velvet and really pretty. Okay, and well, and another thing that I one particular varietal that I've seen a lot here is mm-hmm. Vidal Blanc. Yeah. Um, and I know that that's a hybrid, unlike yep. the Cabernet Franc, but I mean, it produces good wines. Yeah. I mean, everyone I feel like produces Vidal Blanc. Um, and I, I think, it, and we produce it, I mean, it's a very um, reliable varietal. You can do, you can manipulate it, it, whatever, manipulate it in whichever way you'd like to make it as a, entirely a dry wine. So you can have almost like a wine, like a Sauvignon Blanc. Um, or you can make it into a, in, um, there are a couple producers that do this and make it into like a late harvest. And so it can really be done in a huge spectrum of styles, which is actually really, I think, um, fun because you can really just do, you can really make so many wines out of it and, um, and they can all taste different. So, you know, there's that dry to the sweet, then there's off dry ones, there's semi-sweet ones. Um, we usually use Vidal as a, um, as a blending grape and with our dry wines, and we actually even use it as a blending grape with our fruit wines, too. So it's, it's very versatile. Yeah. Did you have any other <laughs> questions? No. no. I've, I've exceeded my amount of uh, what Sorry, I sometimes I go ask. a little bit, yeah. No, no, it, no it's, it's me, not you. I, I, <laughs> I've just exceeded my ability to even ask questions at this point even in i talk a lot i I, (laughs) I, you know i have this i have this ability that when it comes to wine um i that's why i really know i'm in the right industry because um when i come home i don't need to talk about wine as much when i was living with my parents i I knew that they just were like rachel just shut up (laughs) like that's enough and i you know whatever well, we appreciate it. Thank you. And the yeah. other, the uh, the one other grape that I wanted to ask you about mm-hmm. um, was Viognier because yep. that's something that I'm very familiar with. Okay. I come from Virginia, so I see it a lot. But it's beginning to creep into Maryland. Isn't yeah, it? there was a lot of su- success with um, with Viognier in um, in Virginia. Um, Dave Collins um, from Big Cork, um, which is Washington County, but um, he was very successful with it. And um, he brought it over to Maryland. And, you know, since then, I've I've started to see a little bit more of it. And I think, um, you know, whether it's by itself or if it's blended in, uh, it's a varietal that that's very floral. Um, and it's less floral than Traminette, which there are producers that produce Traminette. And for me, that's like lots of flowers. It's like potpourri, but white flowers. And... Um, 
But Viognier is can be done in also very many styles. Um, it can be done as extremely dry, or it can be done in you know in the off dry or semi sweet kind of category. Um, and you know technically you can do it with a, as a late harvest too. But um, you know it's interesting because in Maryland you want to have a, a grape that's going to work well. Number one, um, number two that it's going to produce a nice wine. And number three, that it, it appeases to the palates that we have here because you, do, you can't make a wine and then not just and just sit on it. You have to be able to sell it. And, um, you know, Viognier is a, is a grape that actually originated in France. Um, and so, again, that's another one of those varietals that we brought over um, that has seemed to do well. And people would recognize it maybe in the Languedoc or in, or in, um, in Rhone. Um, but, they, you know, now they're going to be able to see it here. And it's done very varietally correct and very well. Um, so I think there are producers that are there. You know, it takes time. You know, it takes three years to get an actual vintage, three to five years to get an actual vintage. So, you know, one producer may start it one year and then someone may try it five years later because that's when they actually started having their first vintage. And then from that, they're like, oh, well, yeah, this sounds like a good idea. So maybe I'll produce that, too. Then so that's another five or three to five years. So, I mean, the wine industry moves very fast and very slow at the same time. So there are a lot of trends, but they're always in the works. And you don't see it until it happens, <laughs> until you can try it and be like, oh, yeah, OK, then, then another person's going to try it. And that's going to take another three or five years. So, you know, it, it's um, it. I mean, unless they buy the fruit from somebody else, but still, it, it's, um, you know, I think it, it's creeping its way. That's a good word for it, literally creeping its way through. Are your, uh, your grandparents are still involved in the day-to-day of the... Yeah, so actually they were transferring wine this morning, so we're bottling tomorrow. Um, usually I'm very much involved with stuff like that, so um, it's, all th- it's the three of us and, and one other person. Well, we'll have to have you back on again with your grandparents. Yeah, that'd be we great. Can, we'll do an episode specifically about just talking about low and that'd be great history. Uh, so I want to thank you so much for yeah. coming on. I'm so glad I got to come. Putting up with my stupid questions. So there's no uh, stupid in, question. In, no, mine com- stupid. No, there's no stupid question. Um, because Only stupid people. There's oh. no, well, <laughs> there's no stupid question because if you have a question, there's more of a chance that somebody else has the same question. And that's just, you know, that's how it usually works. Because I know that there's plenty of questions. I think, oh, my God, that's probably stupid. But I know that there's other people have the same question. Cool. Well, once again, thank you. Thank you. Um, we'll definitely have you and your grandparents on the talk specifically yeah, awesome. about the low and your winery and vineyard. Um, thank you, Kate, for adding some intelligence to the questions. <laughs> and thank you, everyone, for watching and listening. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. The Uncapped Podcast is produced by Graham Cullen and me, Chris Sands. Be sure to like us on Facebook, and if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please leave us a review on Google Play or the iTunes Store. A special thanks to Double Motorcycle for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening.